0: Sorrow and joy are inseparably connected. One cannot experience one without the other. In the Pixar movie Inside Out, we see a glimpse of the connection between sadness and joy. If you've not seen that film, it is a children's film that seeks to help to understand emotion and how emotions work and The movie portrays two characters, one of joy and sadness. The point of the movie is to see that they're inseparable, that our sadness, that our sorrows, that our pains can often lead to joy. One author writes, our greatest joys often arise out of our deepest moments of sadness. The light shines brightest after the storm." Sorrow and joy are not two random emotions that happen to appear in this chronological order. But rather, sorrow must take place if joy is to come. There's no skipping sorrow to get to joy. Of course, the Bible speaks in similar terms. First, the sorrow, then in the morning, the joy. Has this been your experience? That true joy only comes after a season of sadness and sorrow? That the storms must come, then joy? Jesus is preparing his disciples for the storm of their lifetime. It will come upon them in just a few hours from this passage this morning. In a matter of 24 hours, their entire world would be turned completely upside down. They would witness their leader brutally and unjustly murdered. They would go three days without hearing a word. Then miraculously, they would see him and try to get an understanding of what has happened. In three short days, their world would be utterly changed. And in a matter of months, they would see their leader leave them forever. And upon the ascension of Jesus, the war would rage on. As Jesus had promised them upon his ascension, they would be chased out of town, marginalized, and persecuted, all because of the mission Jesus had sent them on. In these final chapters of John's Gospel, Jesus is preparing them by communicating to them Of the growing hostility that they have witnessed. They have seen and we have witnessed through John's gospel. A growing hostility. Towards Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had commanded them to stick close to him. To abide in him by obeying his word. And enduring the persecution that would come. And Jesus continues in this upper room or final discourse. Preparing his disciples and And reminding them that he's leaving, but he's not leaving them alone. He again reintroduces what he's already mentioned before, that he promises to send the Holy Spirit. So this morning we want to think about together, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit has come? And how does that lead us to lasting joy and peace with God? I invite you to turn to John chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 4 this morning. Um, Again, these chapters don't break quite evenly as as one would hope, but uh, chapter 16 and verse 4, about halfway through the verse, is where I'll begin. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I say to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does this mean? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by the saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in this final passage, final chapter before uh, Jesus prays in chapter 17, the, the high what we know is the high priestly prayer. Jesus here assures us. That his departure is for our benefit. For through the cross and resurrection, he promises to usher in a new era in redemptive history. By sending the Holy Spirit and resulting in our lasting joy and peace. Jesus here is telling the disciples and us that through the cross, through the resurrection, he is inaugurating a new era in redemptive history. A new time, a new spirit is going to come, the, the, a new age, if you will, the age of the spirit. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus promises this new age, the age we live in today, what we experience today. And so we want to be careful as we read this passage, as we seek to understand it. We first have to understand it from the perspective of the disciples uh, before the cross. Understand it in light of the cross and from our own perspective this morning. So you'll find many of these passages referring to the work of the disciples and the apostles. And not applicable to us today. But yet, uh, giving us hope and understanding in a hostile world. So in the midst of the hostile world, while we await for Jesus' return, He assures us this morning of these same three promises. Look with me at these promises First, we see Jesus promising help. Jesus promises his disciples help. In verses 4 through 15, he promises the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come and help them in their journey. Secondly, we see in verses 16 through 22, Jesus promises joy. He promises us genuine joy, that the Christian life is a life of joy, not of sorrow. Thirdly, we see here in this passage that Jesus promises us peace, promises peace, peace with one another and peace with God. So these are the three things we want to look at this morning. First, Jesus promises help. Jesus tells his disciples that for me to leave is for your advantage. Look with me here back to verse 4. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Everything that is to follow is predicated on the reality that Jesus is leaving. He was with them and therefore they didn't need the spirit. But now that Jesus is leaving, they need the spirit. Throughout this passage, we, throughout this chapter, we see a ref, repeated idea of a transforming time. From the beginning, but now. In that day, or the hour is coming, or in that day again later. Jesus is using language to mark off a change in time. There is something about to change. Time and reality is about to be transformed in the disciples' life. What the disciples will experience will only be possible, Jesus makes clear, because of the cross and resurrection. And upon his ascension, Jesus promises that there will be a new age in redemptive history. The age of the spirit. This is the age you and I live in today. uh, The age of the spirit. We, We live by faith and not by sight. We live by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The prophets of old promised this age would come. So, for example, through Ezekiel chapter 36... Ezekiel prophesied of a new day that would come, a day when the Spirit of God would indwell the people of God. He writes this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised that he would give them the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit would be, breathe life where there was spiritual death in God's people. And so throughout John's gospel, we have seen this theme of a Spirit-born people. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or in John chapter 7, verse 37, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Drink from what? From living water. And he's referring there to the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Jesus promises through this chapter again, as he's done in chapter 15 and chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus promises that help to the helpless implicit in this passage is that the disciples will be helpless apart from the Holy Spirit notice here the ministry of the spirit verse eight and when he I'm sorry verse seven nevertheless I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you the helper he describes the ministry of the spirit to be one of help uh, one of of a helping hand, one not to, to do our bidding, not to do what we want, but to help forward the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission that he is going to send his disciples on. Well, notice here in this section that the, the Holy Spirit is coming not to do his will, but the will of Jesus. He's here to do the will of Jesus, that the helper is coming to convict the world. We saw there in verses 8 through 11 The ministry of the Spirit to the world, the, the world's sin of unbelief, that the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. Now, again, in John's gospel, the world is an immediate reference to the Jewish world, the Jewish believers, the, or unbelievers, those in uh, the nation of Israel who are turning away from Jesus. And trusting in themselves. And and Jesus says the spirit will come and convict them of sin. The idea of conviction here is to expose their guilt. Expose their guilt. Uh, Like a lawyer uh, tries a case and there is a conviction. The spirit brings conviction upon an unbelieving world. Similarly, Jesus had warned the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8 and verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's often a lot of talk about an unforgivable sin. What is an unforgivable sin? A sin of unbelief. Not believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is as much of the ministry of the spirit as anything else. Notice in verse nine concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Unbelief is sin. Is sin and the spirit's ministry is to convict the world. And I just want to just point out that's not our ministry. That's the spirit's ministry. You'll never be able to convict somebody of their unbelief. But you can pray to the one whose ministry is Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bring conviction to the unbelieving world, to my unbelieving spouse, to my unbelieving neighbor, to my unbelieving. Not just merely conviction for conviction's sake, but conviction that it might lead to repentance and faith. Secondly, we see here in verse uh, 10, the ministry of the spirit to the world Is that of Christ's righteousness? Look there at verse 10 concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, this isn't forensic righteousness as Paul often talks about it, but that is the righteousness, the holiness, the the perfection of Jesus. What was the main accusation against Jesus by the Jews? That he was unrighteous, that he was a liar, that he was lying to them about who he was. And notice here, the fact that Jesus dies publicly, rises publicly, and ascends publicly is all a matter of public record. Public record. Jesus didn't do any of that in secret. All of it was meant to be a testimony, a visible witness to who he was and who he claimed to be. And the ministry of the Spirit is to bring conviction concerning The reality of who Jesus is. The very end of John's gospel. At the end of the the gospel, we see witnesses bearing witness to who Jesus is. Why? Because they see the the crucifixion of Jesus. They see the, the resurrection of Jesus. And through that, there is confession. Thirdly, we see here in verse 11 that God's judgment of Satan Look there at verse 11 concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Earlier in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is this the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ministry of the spirit is to bring about judgment of this world. In every life, in every day, in the song we sang earlier, in All I Have is Christ. I just commend you reading that this afternoon, just, just kind of thinking about some of that language. Uh, I was once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. It, see, that's the deception of this world. This world thinks that it knows the way. It knows how to live. It knows how to, to go about life. But the judgment that we see is that it is under the influence of the enemy under Satan not under its own control Colossians 2:15 he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly by triumphing over them in Jesus To be very clear Satan was defeated on the cross This is Jesus's point judgment has come while it appeared that Satan had won Jesus won In the end, well, that's the ministry of the Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit has come not only to convict the world, but to comfort the believer. Look at verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. One of the ministries of the Spirit to the believer is to comfort us by guiding the believer in complete truth about Jesus. Now, to be very clear, this is not an ongoing ministry of the Spirit today. As evangelical Christians, we believe the canon is closed. What that means is that God that this has immediate context, immediate applications to the apostles. Those who were commissioned by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to write down the record of Jesus' life and ministry and their teachings about it. In other words, they inscripturated, inspired words of Jesus. The written record that we have in the Old and New Testament was inspired. It is the infallible, inspired word of God. Brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And so that while today we don't enjoy new revelation, we enjoy illumination, that is understanding, about this revelation that's been handed down to us Through the generations. Jesus Christ promises that the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. All truth. Look there at verse 13 again. Into all truth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to bring about deception. To bring about lies. But the truth. And so the Spirit does not still speak today. A number of years ago... uh, um, one of our nation's more liberal denominations had a, uh, a slogan. Uh, when God speaks, he never puts a period, but always a comma. And the idea behind that slogan was that God was still speaking today. Uh, just recently, uh, during the Capitol riots, uh, some of the interviews that took place after that from some of the rioters They claimed that God spoke to them and told them to go to the Capitol and walk through those doors uh, to riot. And these same individuals claim to be evangelical Christians. As Christians, we can undermine the sufficiency of God's word when we claim that God speaks to us in revelatory ways. God told me to say this to you. God does not and will not speak that way. Show me one example when any of the apostles spoke that way or when any other Christian throughout the last 1800 years ever spoke that way. I use that language because that's a relatively new way to speak. It's a, it was born out of some really bad theology in about 200 years ago. And even recently, through the Pentecostal movement, Christians began to speak as if God still gives new revelations. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in the New Testament that gives evidence that God speaks through any other means than His Word. Amen. How does the Spirit speak to you today? How do you, do you want to hear from God today? Then go to His Word. He speaks through His Word, through the Spirit inspired Word. We say this often. We pray that God would give us illumination, that the spirit that dwells within us would give us understanding about his words. Does God give impressions? Yes. Does God have the spirit move within us? Yes. But he does not speak truth. And notice here what he says. He does not speak on his own. Notice what he says there in verse 13, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. In other words, the Holy Spirit only confirms what Jesus speaks to him. It's never anything new. Similarly to what Paul says in Galatians 1. When he says, listen, if someone comes into town and claims to be an angel from God. Claims to have just left the throne room of God and comes down here and speaks to you. And it's a genuine angelic being. And you can. there is no doubt in this congregation's mind that this is an angel standing before him, them and declares to them a gospel any other than the one you heard from the lips of the Apostle Paul. He says, run, yeah. run. And that is true for us today, this morning, that we must submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. That God's word is binding upon our souls, upon our lives, upon our conscience, not new revelation. That God speaks to his people through the complete word, the word you have in front of you this morning. Not only that, we see that the, the Holy Spirit comforts the believer by informing us about the future. You know, one of the saddest testimonies, and, and, and maybe perhaps this was the enemy's, one of the most divisive things I've ever seen in a church is, is the church's understanding about the end, about end times. Has that been your experience that 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 tends to be a a sticking point? We don't talk about it a lot because, you know, there's so many different views. You know, you've got the pre tribulate you got the pre-trib and the pope mid and you got all these different camps. Nobody likes to talk about it because, you know, we want to keep the peace. And so we don't want to be divisive. You know, you got the reform guys, you got the dispensational guys. But notice here the ministry of the spirit. One of the primary means that God uses to comfort his people is to reveal the truth about the future. Isn't it a sad testimony of the work of the enemy to divide God's people over the future? That doesn't mean that prophecy is easy to understand. It doesn't mean that that we have it all figured out. But, But if we understand the purpose of revelation is to comfort us about the future, that we know the end from the beginning, that gives us comfort. That comforts us to know that perhaps we weren't pleased with what happened this week in, in this new administration in our country. I'm sure, for many of us it causes a bit of anxiety, a little frighteningness, you know. I've got my concerns. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is still on the throne. It doesn't change the fact that one day Jesus is coming again to rule and reign for all of eternity. He will declare to you the things that are to come. And notice here also, he will glorify Jesus by declaring his sovereignty over all things. That's exactly the point. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And notice what is Jesus. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I say to you that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus here is saying, listen, the Spirit's going to come and keep declaring one single truth in your mind. I am Lord of lords and King of kings. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? That no one can confess Jesus as Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry of the Spirit to you. To you, Christian, this morning. You need to hear that Jesus is Lord. You need to hear that when when anxiety in your soul creeps up, when fears creep up. You need to hear who is Lord. Who is King. Jesus here promises that the Spirit will have a ministry among God's people. Brothers and sisters, we should be thankful this morning for the ministry of God's Spirit among us today. The Spirit is the one who brought you to Jesus? The Spirit is the one who brought life in your soul where there was death. The Spirit is the one who ministers to you when you can't pray, as we heard earlier in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit takes your feeble prayers and packages them in such a way as to bring them before the throne of God in ways that you quite quite don't even understand. The ministry of the Spirit on your behalf today. God's Spirit is what unites us together. As brothers and sisters. It's what brings genuine equality. True, biblical equality. Every one of us are the same. Every one of us are equal because we all have the same spirit in us. This is a kind of unity that we have. The spirit brings about unity where there is disunity. This is the ministry of God's spirit in us. As Christians, we shouldn't be afraid, but should lean in to the comforter. Although Jesus was leaving, although Jesus has left and he's not here with us today, he did not leave us alone. He did not abandon us in this world. He didn't just we're not just fending for ourselves. The spirit of God is with us, dwells within us. We live in this new age and we, as Jesus said, should most be thankful it is to your advantage. You'll hear often people will say, Man, if I could just have been there, then then I would have believed. Man, it would be man, it would be so much better to have lived then than now. It's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says that the age of the Spirit is to our advantage. Because he has not left us to suffer. But Jesus has also promised his disciples that along their journey, though they would have the helper, they would have sorrow and suffering, but promises supernatural joy. Jesus continues by giving the promise of joy in verses 16 through 22. He says, in a little while, you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. The disciples are quite confused over his statement, aren't they? What does this mean? What are you talking about? You're, what are you going to go down to the store or something and we, we won't see you? What do you mean? Jesus here tells them there is going to be temporary sorrow, but everlasting joy. Now to be clear, Jesus here doesn't say that, that everything in the Christian life is going to be roses. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be uh, calm waters and smooth roads. Jesus here promises disciples sorrow upon sorrow, anguish upon anguish. In the immediate context, what is Jesus referring to? But the cross. In the broader context, he's referring to the time between his ascension and his return. Notice with me here this sorrow of the disciples, this temporary sorrows. Jesus tells them of the anguish of the cross, in a little while you will see me no longer, and again, in a little while you will see me. Jesus here is referring to the time between his death and his resurrection, an excruciatingly long time. Just to get a sense of how it affected the disciples psychologically, uh, looked at the disciples in the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, uh, in the road to Emmaus. They're so disturbed, so distraught over the death of Jesus, that when Jesus is walking with them, they don't even see that it's him. Their, their, their minds are like so made up that Jesus is gone forever. That when Jesus is with them, they can't even grasp it. Uh, Later in the Gospel of John, Thomas himself is standing face to face with Jesus and doubts that it's really Jesus. Unless I touch your side and your hands, then and only then I will believe. Jesus' disciples will experience excruciating pain as they see their Savior suffering. Not quite understanding, not yet fully grasping what Jesus is doing. In their immediate minds, all they see is Jesus unjustly dying on the cross. They don't understand what exactly it is. And that's why Jesus promises that he'll, he'll, he'll help them understand. But notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Is this what you're asking? A little while and you won't see me and again in a little while you will. Here it is. Verse 20, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus here promises them sorrow and anguish, doesn't he? He says to them, listen, you will have sorrow. You will lament, you will weep. And that's exactly what happens. John himself is a is one who testifies their At the cross is a witness weeping and and sorrow over what they are witnessing. But Jesus says that this sorrow will lead to joy. He uses an illustration here that perhaps is all too common for, for many in this room. And that is childbirth. The anguish and the sorrow of nine months of pregnancy is just seems to be brushed away in a moment at the, at the sight of a newborn child. All those long doctor's visits and, and long hours of labor and pain are just brushed away as if it was nothing at the sight of a new child. Jesus here is not only preparing his disciples for us, for the long wait that is to come. And it truly has been a long time. 2,000 years on already Jesus come help us we live in a in a broken world Jesus come and help us but Jesus here promises joy everlasting joy joy and hope in this new age notice what he writes he says but your hearts will rejoice and no one will take it from you he tells them that there is a there is a joy they will see joy in the physical presence of Jesus. Jesus physically was there with his disciples post the cross, post resurrection. He, he didn't just send the Spirit and check out of town, but he physically, it's a seeing joy. He said this in chapter 20, verse 20. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the The promise for us this morning is that we will one day see Jesus with our eyes. That's our promise. That's our joy. That is our hope. It's an everlasting joy. Notice here it's a secure joy. Verse 22. So you will have sorrow now, but you will see me again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The joy of the Christian is a secure joy. It is joy that nothing in this world can take away. You can look at the long history of martyrs in the Christian faith to see that anytime the enemy tried to kill one of our brothers and sisters, the one thing they could never kill was their joy. One of the things as I read church history, just baffles my mind is when saints are being burned at the stake they take the time to to say things to communicate they are burning alive but yet someone had the foresight to write down what these brothers and sisters were saying friends if you don't have joy you don't speak but these people were filled these brothers and sisters were filled with such joy that they're they're Their joy could not be taken. And this morning, your joy cannot be taken. It is secure in Jesus. Friend, just hang out there this afternoon. Do you find that you've been robbed of joy? Listen to the words of your Savior. No one can take it from you. Notice also it's a sufficient joy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. In that day... In the day uh, most immediate, the resurrection, you will ask nothing of me. You'll ask nothing. Well, why does Jesus say that? They've asked a lot of Jesus, haven't they? They've been asking a lot of questions. Jesus says, when you see me on that day, your mouth will shut and you will not ask me anything. In a longer context, when we see Jesus in eternity, it will be a sufficient joy. We won't need Jesus plus something else. Friend, is that, is that true of you now? Is your life Jesus plus something else? Biblical joy is a, is a sufficient, and you see in verse 24, a satisfying joy. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Notice that your joy may be full. Jesus Christ promises us that the Father will supply to us a satisfying joy. Now, we've already dealt with, I don't want to spend time here, but this whatever you want kind of asking here, if if, if what popped in your mind was, man, I'm asking for a new car, because Jesus said, ask whatever you want in my name. The point of the passage is in my name. In other words, would Jesus ask that for you? Jesus don't care if you got a new car, all right? Jesus don't care whether or not you got a boat or whatever you want or, you know, I mean, just think about it. Would Jesus want that for you? And if you think Jesus wants these material things for you, you have the wrong Jesus, all right? You don't have the Jesus here that we're talking about. That's the Jesus of this world. No, no, the Jesus here in this passage tells us, our Lord and Savior tells us that we can ask and the Father will give that we might have all satisfying joy. As he said in chapter 15, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Or 1 John 1, 1.4, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, as Christians, we are to grow into a complete, all-encompassing, all-satisfying, all-sufficient, secure joy through the, the, the risen and ascended Lord. The Christian life is not Jesus plus this world and the material possessions of this world. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. This is what the Apostle Paul preached regularly on. I have learned one thing, the Apostle Paul says, and that is contentment. You see, this world is not content on anything. That's why it's always changing. It's always changing because it's never content. It's never satisfied. It's never enough. You can never have enough. You never have enough food. Never have enough alcohol, never have enough drugs, never have enough sex, never have enough of the things of this world. You can never have enough. Only in Jesus can you be satisfied. Only by knowing Jesus will your soul be satisfied. Jesus promises sorrow and then joy. Jesus promises us that we will have sorrow. Brothers and sisters, we face it. Sadness and sorrow every day. Perhaps this week was a very sorrowful week in your life. But let me just turn and point you to the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That joy that is secure. That no one can take away. Rest in that joy that he has given you. Know that sorrow will come. Sadness will come. But our joy is everlasting. Finally here, Jesus promises peace. He's promised the Spirit would help. He's promised joy. And he promises peace. I have said these things to you. Verse 25. The hour is coming. when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech will tell you plainly about the father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the father on your behalf. Jesus says to them that he's going to plainly tell them some things. What is the point? The point in this section is about peace. That's how he ends, right? Take heart. I I leave you my peace, take heart. Well, how does that relate with Jesus telling them plain things, plain ideas? It's because they they are to have peace through his word, through the word that he's going to speak to him. Brothers and sisters, that's true for us this morning. We generate peace in our lives through his word, through his word. There is war in this world, this hostility, but through his word, there is peace. It's through his word that we understand that we are reconciled through the gospel of Jesus Christ and at peace with God and one another. Secondly, we see, as I just read, that we have peace through unmediated access to the father. Did you notice what Jesus said there in verse 26? Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name. Okay, that's understandable. When we pray, we ask in the name of Jesus. But notice the second half. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus says, since we've been together these last three years, anytime you needed something, I went to the Father and asked. He's going to do that in in chapter 17. He's going to go to the Father and pray on behalf of the disciples. He's going to pray for them. Jesus says, listen. In the age of the Spirit, here's something so amazing. You have unmediated access to the Father. I am giving you the keys that unlocks the door to speak to the Father directly. You don't have to go through a mediator. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a pastor. You don't have to go through another person. If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you have unmediated, unfiltered access to God. That brings some tremendous peace, doesn't it? That brings tremendous comfort and tremendous security to know that you and I this morning can, can speak to the Father. Now, now, how does that relate to peace? Well, Brothers and sisters, if we understand the gospel rightly, our sin deserves God's judgment, not his access. The only access we deserve is, is for the Father to speak words of judgment and condemnation to us. We, we don't even deserve to be in the same room with God the Father because of our rebellion against us. We willingly wanted to take His throne. Like we were, we were trying to bust into His throne in order to go sit on it. And Jesus says that you are welcome to come and speak before my Father. Why? Why? Because they deserve it? Because they earned it? Because they did something tremendous? No, look at what he says. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. In other words, in in the terms of the Gospel of John, because you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God who came to die for your sins and you've trusted in him. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through, through his death and resurrection, we can ask anything and receive it. We don't have to go through a mediator, but we have direct, direct access to the Father. Friend, if that's true, do you, why then don't you pray? If verse 26 is true, why is it that we don't pray? Why is it that we care more about watching the local news, seeing if it's going to snow this week, talking to our friends, or checking our Facebook pages than we do praying? I confess that I often find prayer something that's relegated to an unimportant place. The busyness of life crowds out A regular and consistent time of prayer. That's why we need the scriptures. Why we need to meditate on these truths. Because it reminds us. That genuine peace in this world. Is through prayer. You feel as if. You have no peace. No joy. Then pray. See joy and peace are born out of prayer. I have found in my own personal life when anxiety seems to be at the highest place prayer gives a certain perspective about things, doesn't it? And I think also prayer over a a lifetime the things you prayed about this week are going to seem like so unimportant in a year from now. In 10 years from now, in 20, 30, 40, 50. Just think back about the things you prayed for 10 years ago if you were a Christian. Are are they same importance? Are they the top of your list? Brothers and sisters, let us go to the Father with confidence. He loves us. The father loves he he loves us. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to go to him humbly and say we are helpless without you. And finally, here we see that Jesus promises peace through his victory over the world. His disciples are excited because they think now that Jesus is, you know, speaking clearly and and Jesus exposes them. Just this last time before his high priestly prayer. These are the final words Jesus has for his disciples before his death. Look at what they are. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to desert me. You all pointed your finger at Judas. I'll never be like Judas. I'll never desert you, Peter. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll ne- Jesus is like, yeah, sure. You're going to do it in just a couple minutes. All right, it's okay. But notice this tremendous great grace that he has. I've overcome the world, he says. You're going to all deny me. You're all going to run away like scared little kids. Indeed, he comes, he says, and you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Peace with who? Peace with God. Peace with one another. Although they're going to abandon Jesus, Jesus isn't going to abandon them. Although they're going to betray Jesus, Jesus isn't going to betray them. One of the most beautiful things about John's gospel is the reconciliation of Peter at the end of it. The very end of this gospel ends with Peter being reconciled to Jesus Though he had betrayed, though he had denied Jesus, Jesus restores him graciously and lovingly. And he promises his disciples, listen, I want you to know I will be victorious over your sin and over this world. And so I leave you with this truth. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, but see, that's how sure this whole thing is. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's going to lay down my life. I'm the one who is going to die. I've got this. Believe in me. And peace with God and peace with one another is not like the peace of this world, but genuine peace that abides over and against the hostility of this world. Brothers and sisters, this world is going to tempt us to be hostile with one another, hostile with other Christians, and even hostile towards the, to, towards the world. But you and I must embody the peace that Jesus Christ gives us in this passage. Jesus assures us that his departure is for our benefit. That though he is not physically with us today, he is present with us through the Holy Spirit. We live in the Spirit, the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to comfort us, to bring life with us. He is here ready at hand to help us in moments of need. He is our helper. Do not feel that you are helpless spiritually in this world. The Holy Spirit is with you and can be with you if you will turn and trust in Him. Jesus has promised us that although we may face violent persecution and betrayal in this world, we have genuine joy. An everlasting joy. A joy that cannot be taken from us. It is ours forever. Because we are secure in Jesus forever. As we'll sing in just a moment, that He will hold me fast. Friends, Jesus doesn't want us to hold. He promises that He will hold us. More than that, Jesus promises... That he has accomplished our peace, a grace-inducing peace. That through the cross, Jesus has brought peace. The peace of God that you and I enjoy this morning. These are just the beginnings of what Jesus has ushered in through his death and resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, I leave you with this truth. The truth that Jesus gives. Let us take heart. Let us be of good courage. Let us not grow weary and sorrowful and sad, but have this lasting, genuine joy as we traverse this fallen world. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we might know that the Spirit indwells us. We might believe and trust. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us illumination and understanding and the power to to believe. Holy Spirit, build your church. It is for your glory we pray in Christ's name.